You're listening to Conversations with John Anderson, featuring Louise Perry. Louise Perry is a journalist and author based in London. She's a columnist for Unheard. She hosts Maiden Mother Matriarch podcast series. And she's the author of the landmark book, The Case Against the Sexual Revolution, A New Guide to Sex in the 21st Century. So, Louise, thank you very much for your time today. Um, If we could kick off, you've written at length about the sexual revolution. What was it? And how is it still with us today? Because it's not new. So I think the sexual revolution was two things um, that happened at the same time. So, so one was the enormous material changes of the second half of the 20th century, the, the most important one being the pill, which obviously is transformative. And I don't think that we, we, I don't think we recognize typically quite how transformative it was, quite how important it was, because for the first time in our species history, it suddenly becomes possible for women to control their fertility themselves invisibly, you know. And I think that actually the woman who um, appears to be fertile but has in fact suspended her fertile her fertility is in a funny kind of way almost a different biological creature entirely, right? And she, she enters the world in the late 1960s. So the pill is the important one, as well as things like uh, washing machines, enormous changes to the economy. So we move from being an, an industrial economy to being a service and knowledge-based economy which is advantageous for women because women can more easily participate in those kind of sectors, etc. There are lots of changes that come about all at the same time, which have had an enormous impact on relationships between men and women and have allowed women to participate more in public life, um, sort of for good and ill. That's, that's, a, that's a, 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 a narrative, an historical narrative, which is normally interpreted as being straightforwardly a good thing. I want to say, look, there are some trade-offs here, which we need to talk about. Um, The thing that happens at the same time as the material revolution is also the ideological one. So it's the the revolutionary ideas coming out of academia in particular in the 1960s, places like France in particular, um, where all of a sudden kind of everything is up for for subversion and where the reaction against traditionalism is this this new crusade adopted by intellectuals across the West and ties in perfectly with um, the, the new opportunities presented by the pill and so forth. So I think it's worth remembering that the reason that the, you know, it is not unique historically, that kind of intellectual mo- moment of that, that feeling of revolution, you know, that's, that's by no means confined only to the 1960s. It does tend to be, as you look historically, a sort of roller coaster between periods of sexual um, periods of prudishness and, and periods of of um, licentiousness do tend to kind of um, come in waves. You know, you have the you have the 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 the, the Randy Georgians followed by the prudish Victorians followed by you know, um, and there have always been examples of aristocrats in particular being behaving in very modern ways, you know, sexually. There have always been those examples of this. But what's really unique about the sexual revolution of the 60s is that it's stuck 
it wasn't just confined to a few eccentric elite people. It wasn't just confined to intellectual circles. It became it became hegemonic. I mean, now questioning the sexual revolution is considered to be a really, you know, crazy thing to do. Um, and I think that's because it was backed up by the pill. It's because it became possible to basically sever sex from reproduction for the first time ever. Um, and um, yes, and now it's, you know, to even recall the fact that actually in um, most times and places, sex is probably the most consequential thing a woman can do in terms of the likely, the, the chance of pregnancy and the effect on her life. You know, that's to, for many young women now is unimaginable. But for 99% plus of our species history, that was, that would have been common sense. I'd be interested in hearing your views as I've, I've watched the debate in Australia over recent years, particularly in the context of Me Too, uh, in the context of inappropriate behaviour in the public space in Australia and the uproar, including legal, over some things that happened in the Australian Parliament amongst staffers and the public furore that's followed. It struck me that it's hard to think of anything that can be so powerful a force for good in terms of deep human engagement with others, expression of love, uh, of commitment, uh, of joy at the other end that can be so utterly destructive, so demeaning, so degrading and so cruel. The way in which we conduct our sexuality in an age when people demand complete freedom has often been carried forth without anybody thinking about the potential for good, the potential for bad. Yeah. I, yeah, I think that's true. I don't think there's, there may be no other facet of life for which the extremes are so extreme. Yeah. Um, I mean, one of the, um, one of the mistakes, I think, of the, um, the ideology of the 1960s, of which we're all now the um, descendants, is that because it was rooted so much in a reaction against traditionalism of all kinds, and in particular a reaction against Christianity, and of course Christianity and indeed all other religious traditions, hold sex to have a very important status, to have a sacred status within marriage and so on. Um, when you have a, an intellectual movement which is all about reaction against Christianity and a rejection of, of everything that's come before, which to some extent is, you know, is maybe not, it's maybe not a surprise that that would have come out of the Second World War, that kind of enormous reaction against everything that had come before, a sort of complete loss of faith in tradition and culture to date. Um, that does include a reaction against the idea of sex having a sacred status or sex even having a special status, a unique status of any kind. So I, I describe this in my book as um, sexual disenchantment. So, so, so feeding off of uh, Max Weber's idea of, dis, of, of disenchantment as a process of, um, as, a, as a component of the enlightenment, where previously people felt that the that natural world had a kind of special sacred um, almost conscious status and that's all stripped away as part of the scientific revolution and people come to believe that it's inert and, and just subject to, to um, rational forces and so on. 
I think sexual disenchantment is the same sort of process that people used to believe that sex was, was sacred, was special. And what the new ideology post-sexual revolution tells us is, oh no, it's just a social interaction. You know, you can buy it, you can sell it, you can treat it as meaningless. You know, if you want to attach special status to it, then like fine, whatever, you know, people can still get married, people can still um, choose to behave in traditional ways. But the fundamental idea is that actually sex is, is not really any different <clears throat> from shaking someone's hand, playing tennis, making a coffee for someone, you know, that, that, that it has a completely neutral status. People, of course, don't actually act as if that's true. I was going to say. Yeah. No one actually behaves so it's not as special. if that's true. And yet yeah. we're a sex-obsessed society in some ways. Yeah, yeah. So the theory is, from a sort of hyper-progressive hyper position, is that, um, you know, sex can be commodified, uh, porn is just another kind of entertainment, all this kind of stuff, but then no one actually behaves as if that's true. Like, people, people care if their spouse cheats on them. People care if their boss is sexually inappropriate to them. You know, it's this funny component of Me Too, where on the one hand, you have uh, enormous distress at sexual inappropriateness in, in, in various circumstances, including particularly in the workplace. So, you know, I, as a journalist, this is obviously something that's, that's been a big deal in journalism. I know a lot of female journalists who, on the one hand, will be enormously upset at, say, inappropriate touching or um, being asked out on a date by a senior colleague, all this kind of stuff, which is felt to be completely inappropriate because sex should be outside of the, the professional realm, you know. But then on the one hand, support the decriminalization of the sex industry and would say that sex work, so-called, I don't use that phrase, but would say that sex work is just the same as any other kind of work and that we shouldn't be stigmatizing pornography or whatever. And I'm like, come on. So sexual touching in your workplace, that's, that's beyond the pale. But actually having a whole industry which is entirely based on sex, which is, you know, where, where the buying and selling of sex is the point of the industry. You know, I think what, what does... What on earth does sexual harassment look like in a brothel? How can you have these? And I think what's going on there is people are trying to hold to the idea of sexual disenchantment in an intellectual way, but actually it's not true. You know, people feel very strongly instinctively that sex does have a special status, even if they try and deny it to themselves. And I think that that whole, this whole effort to try and pretend otherwise has been an enormous mistake. So this comes to this sort of issue I was trying to raise before, that in reality it can be a force for enormously satisfying bonding at one extreme. And the reality is it can be unbelievably cruel and destructive and degrading at the other. How you use it does matter. Yeah. What does it say about feminism in your view that they have in many ways, you know, feminism has adopted some fairly extraordinary positions, as you've just outlined. What are, what's been your own journey in terms of feminism and the way it's evolved over the last few decades? Um, so I insist on defining myself as a feminist, partly because I think that um, the way that feminism has largely been captured by, you know, a particular, a particular ideology, which, which we've been talking about, um, 
is pernicious. And I think that actually the, the, the best way of defining feminism is just, you know, a political movement that thinks that women are disadvantaged in certain ways and wants to remedy that. You know, that doesn't have to come along with any of this um, nonsense that I'm really critical of. I think that what we're seeing in terms of, say, the, the feminists who embrace sexual disenchantment, the feminists who um, uh, who seek essentially in every way to permit women to live like men as much as possible, who try and erase the differences between men and women across the board. Um, I think that this is just a sort of feminist instantiation of hyperliberalism. So an ideology that prioritizes freedom above absolutely everything else and doesn't see any other doesn't see freedom as as something to be balanced with other virtues, but sees it as a as the sole goal. You know. I think that we are seeing that ideology just brought to its logical conclusions with something like sexual, the idea of sexual disenchantment. Because if you want people to be completely and utterly free, then you do have to take aim at the idea of sacredness, at the idea that we should be confined by any kind of traditional ideas, even that we should have obligations to each other. You know, I mean, one of the things that I um, think is really disastrous about this, this, what I call liberal feminism in the book, is that it, it cannot accommodate motherhood because the nature of being a mother is that you have, you have enormous obligations to your baby. You have an incredibly strong link, initially physical and then, and then increasingly just emotional, but you know, a very strong link with your baby to the extent that you can't really understand a mother or a baby as being individuals. They're a dyad, you know. And if your goal is to promote women's freedom, you can't reconcile that with the existence of the dyad and with the fact that, you know, that um, a comment that a friend of mine made, um, which I repeat all the time because it's because it's funny and because it's true, is that um, the only thing that will restrict your freedom more than having a baby is going to prison, which is completely true. <laughs> you know, I say we both had our first babies at about the same time. Um, how do you how do you accommodate that within an ideology that sees the freedom of the individual as the most important thing? You know, you can't. So basically you end up just rejecting motherhood is basically what's happened. And we're even getting to the point now where liberal feminism is rejecting the female body, full stop. You know, we now have the medical technology that will allow women to, um, you know, use a surrogate if you don't want to be pregnant yourself, allow you to transition to being a man if that's what you want, you know. we. If, if, if freedom is your goal, then the human body is very much an impediment. And, and, this, and this has produced a kind of politics where actually the use of other people's bodies, often the bodies of poorer people, is seen as a completely reasonable sort of self-actualization project. And the idea of having any social guardrails, any tradition, any, you know, anything sacred is also fair game. Um, and I'm not convinced at all that that ideology is in the best interest of women, even if it may be in the best interest of a few women who are unusually powerful, etc. 
I think that you know the the, the argument that I make in 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 um, my my book and in my writing in general is I think the biggest losers of the sexual revolution have been poor women, specifically. You're painting a picture that some people are buying what you've called freedom. I'm tempted to call it license. I think the two are very different. Yeah. But they're purchasing it at the expense of other people's freedoms. You mentioned poorer women, but I'm also thinking of children themselves who really seem to be increasingly the victims of the indulgent fantasies of adults. Yeah. I mean, the way that they were on, on, the, on the, the poorer women subject, the way that liberal feminists and others would justify this would be saying, well, they consent. You know, a woman consents to be a surrogate. A woman consents to uh, sell sex or to appear in pornography or whatever. Um, these things are meaningless and kind of um, profane, so you can buy and sell them. Who cares? If people are consenting, there's no problem. Um, I don't. I don't agree with that. I think that consent is a bare minimum legal requirement. It is not. It, there's a very large grey area between something being consensual and something being good. And I think that just having, if your only moral framework is this consent framework, you end up excusing all sorts of um, terrible things that cause people terrible harm, um, including, as you say, to children. I mean, thinking about something like surrogacy, um, which I've written about elsewhere, the interests of the children are basically out of the picture when it comes to most discussions around surrogacy. I mean, we're talking about this currently in the UK because the Law Commission has just um, brought out a set of recommendations and is now parliamentarians and are tasked with deliberating on them, which would basically liberalise the, um, the, the, the law around surrogacy in this country and give more... I mean, the, the, the crucial bit of the recommendations, which I think is um, most concerning, is that at the moment when a child is born, the woman who gave birth to that child is considered to be the legal mother. And if she has a, a spouse, then that person is considered to be the legal father. And at the moment, if um, parents have, uh, the people who've commissioned the surrogacy arrangement, you know, the, the intended parents, um, they have to apply for a parental order. And so there's a, there's, a, there's a slight time lag until they become the legal parents of the child, if the surrogate consents to, to them becoming the, the, the legal parents. What the Law Commission want to do is say that um, the surrogate mother is not the legal mother at birth. So she signs away her rights to be the legal mother before the child is even born. And it, it, it becomes more difficult in practice for her to change her mind and to keep the baby. This is, this is essentially, so it, 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 uh, it lubricates the process for the intended parents. It doesn't commercialize surrogacy. There's still resistance to commercializing it in this country. Although in practice, there are instances of people passing money under the table and it kind of in practice being commercialized, but that, that's, still, that's still a hard limit. Um, but we're definitely moving in a direction. We're moving in a more American direction. We're already an outlier in Europe. We're already more permissive in Europe compared with other European states. And what is being proposed would take us closer to Ameri an American situation, which is in some, in some states very heavily commercialized. The debate, as far as I can tell, is just all around the, the rights and desires of adults. 
the fact that what surrogacy... Um, privileged adults, Yes, it seems to me. Yes, and not coincidentally, Because going say, to your yes. issue of consent, presumably many surrogate mothers are doing it because they're in very necessitous and difficult circumstances and they do it for financial reasons. Bearing someone else's child with the difficulties of pregnancy, the challenges of childbirth, the emotional pain, there must be emotional pain, yeah. of having grown another human being in your own body and then parting with it, that doesn't sound very much like a commitment to freedom to me. Yeah, so a lot of, I mean, the, 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 the radical feminist objection to surrogacy is that it involves the instrumentalisation of women's bodies, that it involves exploitation. There clearly are lots of examples of terrible exploitation, particularly if you're talking about, you know, Indian baby farms or the, the sort of horrors that we've seen happening in um, parts of the global south. That's true. I agree with all of that. I would add, though, I think there is an additional objection to even altruistic surrogacy arrangements where there's no money involved in that it necessarily involves separating mothers and newborns. That's the point, you know. And yes, we do this when it comes to, say, adoption. We recognise that there are instances where babies have to be removed from the, their mothers and that that is a tragedy and that it's done only in the interest of the child and is closely supervised by social services and so on. You know, we recognise that that's a position of last resort. And actually, in recent years, I mean, social services have been moving away from adoption as much as possible and try and, try and use it only in the very most extreme cases. What surrogacy does is it sets out to engineer that outcome deliberately and not for the sake of the child. It's not done in the child's best interest. It's done because the commissioning parents, who, as you say, are often very privileged, want to have a child that's, you know, like a bespoke genetic child all of their own, essentially. That's, that's the goal. And I think if we know that there is, we know that newborns suffer stress when they're, when they're taken away from the women who've given birth to them. You know, newborns come into the world knowing nothing except the smell of their mothers, the sound of their mothers' voices. You know, that they, their, their instincts when they're born are entirely orientated towards the woman who's just given birth to them. You know, a newborn doesn't know that, that this woman doesn't have a genetic connection or whatever. Um, and similarly, the instinctive responses of women. Um, my friend Mary Harrington, who also writes for Unheard, um, the phrase that she uses, which I think is so, is so good, is pregnancy doesn't just create a child, it creates a mother. All of those sort of hormonal experiences of pregnancy are, are geared towards making a woman entirely devoted to her baby and orientated towards the enormous amount of care that a baby needs. I mean, I calculated when, when my son was born that I was spending 40 hours a week in the first um, months of his life just breastfeeding. I was doing a full-time job just breastfeeding, let alone all the other stuff, you know. Like, it's an incredibly demanding role. And natural selection has blessed us with the ability to perform that role because we are primed to do it by the experience of pregnancy and birth. And what surrogacy does is it deliberately... Um, severs the connection between newborn and mother and interrupts that natural process of love and bonding. Again, for what purpose? For the purpose of, of, of providing people who want a particular kind of child with that child, you know. And I think that any kind of... It makes complete sense if you are subscribed to this kind of hyper-liberalism which sees the self-determination of the individual 
as the most important goal. But if you hold anything else to be sacred, you know, it, not just thinking that sex is sacred, thinking that the maternal baby bond is sacred, thinking that the family is sacred, thinking that any of these things have a sort of, have a value beyond the instrumental, then I think you have to be distressed by surrogacy and by the sex industry and all, you know, all of the other things that I'm, that I'm so critical of. To get right above this for a moment and just look down from a sort of uh, bird's eye view of a culture, there's an old saying that children are the future. And we know from the research there's been a dramatic drop, dramatic, I mean staggering drop, and the number of people in Western cultures who will say children are important to me. Mm. And it seems to me that it's a culture that's no longer particularly committed to its own future to say that children are not important to me and that will so lightly take um, this sort of approach to children's well-being, to babies' well-being, is to say, well, we're just going to place all of the emphasis on the licence, because that's the word I'd rather use. You use the word hyper-freedom. I guess they mean the same thing. Um, just giving free play to that without considering the future, which I still believe is our children. Yeah. How did it get to this? Well, it is a logical outcome of this kind of politics that we've been speaking about. You know, if you think that your own short-term pleasure is the most important thing, then, yeah, children are not, you know, um, what's that saying? Parenthood is all joy and no fun. It's, it's hard to think of anything that is more counter to a sort of hedonistic consumerist culture than parenting, because hedonism is all about front-loading the short-term pleasure, even though you know we know that it, that 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 pleasure fades quite quickly. Whereas parenting is all about front-loading effort, and particularly in the case of the mother, pain and discomfort and everything. Um, for the sake of a very long-term source of meaning and satisfaction. So it, it makes sense that parenthood is not really considered to be um, an essential part of the good life. The irony of that, of course, is in terms of demographics, most Western cultures are going to face a situation where people who have lived this lifestyle will get to old age and find there isn't the tax base, there aren't the workers, there isn't the infrastructure to keep them in the very comfort to which they've been so addicted. Yeah. This I is, mean, it's a strange irony that people yes. don't think these things through. Yeah. This is the subject of my next book, actually. I'm writing a book called The Case for Having Kids, which is sort of about the flip side of this, right? So the first book was about um, the effects on sexual culture of the pill severing sex from reproduction. And this is the other side of it, you know, the fact that we, now that it is so much easier to not have children, um, because you can have sex without getting pregnant. Um, so many people are, are choosing to do that. I mean, the, the cause of plummeting birth rates is a source of great debate because um, it's easy to sort of, it's, it's quite easy to be parochial about it and say, I mean, like a common thing that I'll hear among my friends in London, for instance, is, oh, it's because house prices are too high so people can't afford to have children. And it's like, yes, house prices are very high and it probably is, 
a disincentive for some people. Um, but this is happening everywhere. So only about 3% of the world's population live in a country where the birth rate is not falling. Um, some countries have much lower birth rates even than, even than us. So South Korea is currently the, the, the out, out in front by some distance. And, and the Japanese, the Chinese, the Northern Italians. Yes. It's I mean, extraordinary. Even yes. Bangladesh has a falling population. It's amazing, yeah. Um, there seems to be something about modernity that causes this. As soon as countries, um, and, and the, the sort of income threshold is not even necessarily that high. It's not even that you have to be really affluent in order to start on this declining birth rates trajectory. And as you say, Bangladesh, places like that, people aren't very rich, but they've already, they're already on in this second demographic transition. Um, it seems to be something to do with people becoming modern, particularly becoming urbanized and spending less time. You know, one definition of, of modernity, which I find very interesting and attractive, is it's, it's essentially defined as spending more time with strangers than with people you're related to. Because in traditional cultures, you spend basically all, all your time. I mean, a hunter-gatherer kind of tribes, you're basically constantly surrounded by your extended kin network. Um, and then as people migrate away from rural areas, live increasingly atomized lives, you, you know, many people will hardly ever see their families. They'll spend almost all of their time with people they're not related to. And that seems to be very strongly linked with falling birth rates. Um, for, I mean, we can, we, can, we can speculate on the connection there, but it does seem to be a very strong one. And yes, as you say, the, the, the current, um, the affluence currently available to modern Westerners, the, the, the welfare state, state pensions, uh, socialized healthcare, all of this. I, I would be enormously surprised if I ever receive a state pension because I think by the time we, probably in the UK, I would guess probably about the 2040s is when we're likely to see really significant collapsing of these kind of public services because that's when the baby boomers are gonna pass away and they were the last above replacement generation. Um, but the whole system is a Ponzi scheme. Yeah, people haven't realized it. Yeah. It's extraordinary. Yeah. Mind you, they have in Beijing. They're desperately trying everything they can to get the birth rate up, and it's not happening. Yeah, yeah, because well, that's what we've... I mean, that's what the Chinese are discovering to their cost. That what it's an quite, irony. It's quite easy to lower birth rates. Yeah. The one-child policy was pretty successful, obviously incredibly coercive, but it worked, mm. whereas trying to, to, to move them in the yeah. other direction doesn't seem to be possible. It always seems fascinating to me that I can't see any great concern on the part of feminists. But the other part of the equation there is the massive disappearance of vast numbers of um, female babies. Yeah. Well, I mean, some feminists do talk about it, but it's a tricky one because if you're going to, if you're going to be radically pro-choice, I mean, uh, there, are, there are lots of arguments that you could make in defense of having some forms of legalized abortion, right? But if you're going to have a complete um, sort of, if you're going to argue for it from a position of radical autonomy, the fetus has no personhood, etc it's quite hard to square that with them thinking that female fetuses being aborted are having some kind of harm done to them, which is, I think, why that, that, that source of dissonance to people tend not to look it's at. quite telling, though. It's almost opening up a whole new sort of uh, range of issues. But what's happening in the sort of the psychology of the West 
prosperous, you've mentioned house pricing, but basically Western societies that enjoy high living standards even today. What, what's happening in the minds of people that they're not attracted to having children and they're not, and nowhere near as concerned as I believe they ought to be in ensuring that the child is nurtured appropriately. It's funny, isn't it? That letting them be victims yeah. of the culture battles that are going on. We've, we've never been safer. We've never been more comfortable. And yet it is not uncommon to hear young people saying something like, oh, how could I bring a child into this world and sort of subject them to the horrors of the world, particularly when it comes to, for instance, climate change. And I think our ancestors brought children into the world with the expectation that half of them would die before they turned five, you know, with constant threat of famine, of war, of all of these things, which we fortunately just essentially don't really think about. Um, I mean, I'm sure that part of what is going on with um, people who say they don't want to have children because of climate change is it is sometimes more palatable to, to, to tell oneself that story or to tell other people that story that you're doing this for virtuous reasons rather than to say, well, I don't want to take the hit to my lifestyle, you know, which is often a big part of what's going on. It is true that you will, it will take a hit to your lifestyle, having a child, it will, because, I mean, a lot of this is to do with the fact that we are now, all of society is set up on the expectation of two incomes. And a big part of the reason why house, house, houses are incredibly unaffordable if you have children, if you have just either you're paying childcare costs or because um, you have a stay-at-home parent and, and another breadwinner is because you're competing against people who have two incomes and no children, right? So um, it is true that it'll take a hit to your lifestyle. That obviously doesn't sound as nice as saying, well, I'm doing it in this sort of valiant effort to, to protect the planet. Um, but I think it is also combined with a very sincere sort of loss of confidence um, among Westerners. I mean, we see this elsewhere in all the culture war battles, a feeling that there's something kind of, um, something sick, something bad about the West. A, a real lack of, um, a real loss of faith in in everything really, in the whole civilization. And, and particularly, of course, when it comes to loss of religious faith. Um, it was funny watching the, um, the coronation to see this very rare example of, um, of the old establishment. Almost, it felt almost a little bit like a last hurrah, you know, like the, the obviously it is, the, coron the coronation is an explicitly Christian ceremony. It, it, it feels deeply medieval in, in large parts of it, despite the, the, the efforts to sort of um, uh, inject some modern elements into it. It still felt deeply Christian to you know, but it felt almost like the ghost of the past watching it because this is now so, so much less prized than it once was. And maybe it's just very difficult for people who, who, who basically don't have any who basically despise their ancestors to, to, want to, to want to invest in the future, to want to you know, make the enormous personal sacrifices that you do have to make in order to have children. Um, 
yeah, it's amazing. It's like a, it's like a collective suicide. <laughs> it is well. Yeah, at our most at our most affluent, our most comfortable, our safest period in history, and everyone decides all of a sudden to commit collective suicide. It's very strange human behaviour, isn't it? I have a very good friend who is one of the world actually is leading heart lung specialists, and he writes uh, extensively about the importance actually of fathers being involved with their children's lives. But that's incidental. I asked him why he's doing that, and he said. At the time that I asked him, he said, I've had to tell about 300 men, there's nothing more we can do, you are going to die. And he said, all 300 have had as their first response something along the lines of, I wish I'd spent more time with my family and children. What does it say about our psychology that when we get to old age, those relationships are, well, because by definition, most of them are older. They see the value and they regret they haven't put more into it, not, not had less of it, that mm. somehow we can't think we've got a pandemic of loneliness emerging. We're rapidly getting to the point where a lot of children will come into the world and won't know what it is to have a sibling. They won't have aunts and uncles. And they're going into such a fractured world that it'll be harder than ever to join up relationally. What on earth has happened to us that we can't, Think clearly. So I suppose the normal human life cycle, you, 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 there's rarely a point where you are not in some way dependent on your family or they are dependent on you. So, so little babies are completely dependent on normally their, their mothers and other family members. Um, and then you reach this brief period of relative independence as a young adult where you're old enough to take care of yourself but you're not you don't yet have children or elderly parents to look after but then in a in a kind of normal human life cycle without the pill that's very brief and then you have your own children and then event and then you help get to care for grandchildren eventually you're cared for in turn and there's this constant kind of process of reciprocity um, but to some extent what modern life allows us to do is to artificially extend that period of independence and actually to present that period of independence as being, um, as being the default. But actually, independence is not the default in the human life cycle. Or in, you know, and also, of course, many people, disabled people, for instance, will never have that period of complete independence. It's kind of an illusion that's, that's propped up by technology. Um, but it's very fragile. And I think a lot of people don't think about that because if, we, if we've also abandoned the kind of um, uh, traditions or religious beliefs and, and so forth, which basically act as social guardrails and encourage people to behave in in ways that are more conducive to long-term flourishing. A lot of people will think, well, you know, right now I, I, I love being an independent person. I love not having obligations to other people um, without thinking about the fact that that's not going to last. Because it can't, unless you die, you know, rolling stones, unless you die before you get old, that's not gonna last. Um, and uh, yeah, but then how do you persuade, you know, this is this problem of having a culture of short-termism. How do you persuade people to make decisions that are gonna benefit them when they're in their 80s? Because that doesn't seem real. They seem pretty people. switched on to their superannuation and making sure that nest egg's safe. 
Wow, yes. But they're not investing in the same opportunities to ensure that they have meaningful relationships and, and personally rewarding lives. Yeah. Interesting contrast. Can I drill into, I mean, the promise of the sexual revolution was that sex could be fun mm. and enjoyable. And I suppose the argument would have been that that will make life richer and more pleasurable without stopping to think that short-term pleasure often compromises long-term happiness. But to drill into what does it mean for men, women first and then for men today, what does the sexual revolution as it's unfolded mean for the happiness of, of, of particularly young women today as they start to become, you know, as they leave school and start to go out into the big wide world, and many of them, I guess, long before they leave school? Well, How's it playing out in their lives? The, the yeah, the I think this way to live is normal. Actually, it's an aberration. It's really only 50 years old. Yeah. How's it working really for them? Well, the, the promise, of course, was that this was in women's interests. Yeah. This was all about allowing women to flourish and, and sort of um, removing the old restrictions on female sexuality. It sort of has done that. But there's lots of polling to suggest that women have actually become increasingly unhappy over time, um, which um, there are a lot of different ex possible explanations for that one. I mean, it's certainly the case, I think, that a lot of young women are deeply unhappy with the current sexual culture, because a lot of them write to me <laughs> and tell me that they are deeply unhappy with it, because um, our current sexual culture that prioritizes um, uh, casualness, is much better suited to typical male sexuality than to typical female sexuality. But of course, given that liberal feminism is so strongly orientated towards denying the difference, the, the existence of innate differences between men and women, particularly psychological differences between men and women, um, a lot of young women don't realize, perhaps until it's too late, that those differences exist. And that the idea of having sex like a man is not actually going to serve them long term. I mean, there are. I mean, the, the physical differences. I just that, to my mind, it just seems so obvious that a culture of casual sex puts women at a disadvantage because women suffer all of the physical risks associated with a casual encounter. Right, the the risk of physical violence, given that women are so much smaller and weaker than men, the risk of an unwanted pregnancy, um, the various burdens that come with using hormonal birth control. I mean, a lot of women find hormonal birth control, gives them terrible side effects and makes them um, crazy and miserable, you know. Um, but also the psychological effects in that women tend to, in general, there are outliers, but in general women tend to be just less interested in hopping into bed with a mere stranger than men are. Um, so women basically aren't really getting anything out of this. Uh, and I think a lot of women are starting to realize that, but there is that feeling that it's compulsory, that it's normal, that this is what, this is what you do if you're a young liberated woman, et cetera, et cetera. Like the, that narrative is very um, seductive. And, you know, I've spoken to a lot of women who have gone through the experience of thinking as a young woman that having sex like a man was aspirational and that, that you know, I'm doing this for myself. I'm I'm a young hedonist, or you know, all, all that kind of that kind of Sex in the City lifestyle, etc. 
And then some years later comes the realization that actually it was, it actually caused them a lot of suffering. I've never met anyone who's done the opposite, who's trodden the opposite path, you know, which is, I think, revealing. Um, I, I think there is, I mean, we, we talked about Me Too. I think Me Too was a really good indication of the fact that women aren't happy that this whole this sexual culture isn't really working for women you know a lot of what a lot of the, the stories that came out of me too were not really about criminality i mean some were you know harvey weinstein was was a criminal and was convicted and so on but a lot of what was being talked about wasn't really criminal it was actually to do with it was this gray space between consensual and good and about which liberal feminism has very little to say and women were finding that they were they were having sexual encounters which left them feeling wretched, even if no crime had occurred. And that they were being asked to treat as meaningless something that they felt to be meaningful. But because liberal feminism remains the dominant, the dominant, um, um, the dominant feminist iteration, a lot of these women didn't have the vocabulary to describe what was going on. They couldn't, they couldn't, reassert the special sacred nature of sex. They couldn't talk about innate differences between men and women because these are all things that you're sort of forbidden from talking about. And so they had to come back to talking about consent, 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 which is such a feeble kind of framework for understanding something as important and complex as a sexual relationship. So I think that, that there, there's a very clear indication that women are not happy with the status quo, but it's it's almost impossible to address the real source of their unhappiness through a liberal feminist framework. Which is why your work's so valuable. Well, that's what I'm trying to do. <laughs> so to come to men, how, how's the sexual revolution worked out for men? So I think the, the only <clears throat> beneficiaries of our current um, casual sexual culture are a minority of men. So I write about the, the Hugh Hefners of the world. Yeah, I start the book by talking about Hugh Hefner and Marilyn Monroe as the, as the two icons of the sexual revolution who had completely different experiences of it. Um, Marilyn Monroe was basically destroyed by the sexual revolution, whereas Hugh Hefner had a ball. You know, he did eventually end up being fairly lonely and pathetic, and, and he ended his life um, no longer being the glamorous playboy, but he, he had a lot of fun along the way. Yeah, I think he's one of these rare, rare people who um, has been able to enjoy the fruits of the sexual revolution um, without really suffering any costs. For most men, that's not true. And for most men, um, you know, they don't have access to um, a harem of 20-something blondes, as Hefner did. And actually, the, uh, this, this peculiar thing that on the one hand, we've never had a more hypersexual public life, and uh, had had sort of fewer inhibitions about sex, but people are also actually having less sex. There's this, the sex recession, so-called, the sex depression, where young people in particular are having much less sex, actually, than their supposedly inhibited prudish grandparents, um, which is a funny sort of a funny sort of contradiction. But I think it's probably because people aren't. Um, forming relationships. So they're having, they're having more casual sexual relationships. And Are they having more? Or is in fact, is it true that for many young people, they're 
delaying or not having sexual relationships in quite high numbers now? It depends on which group you're talking about. So very attractive men um, are able to have lots of casual relationships with lots of women, and most women will have no difficulty um, getting casual sex at all. You know, whether or not they really want it, they have, they'll have no difficulty accessing it. Um, but what women often struggle to get is a committed relationship. And actually people are Where are all the good men? They're enjoying being Hugh Hefner's. Well, it depends on who, it depends on who you're talking about. Isn't it? But, there, but there are, it's this short-termism thing, you know, that if you're a young, attractive man who can attract lots of matches on Tinder, it may be more tempting to enjoy the Hugh Hefner lifestyle rather than to commit to one woman, even though that would be, that would be more meaningful and more satisfying long-term. Um, but if you can enjoy the kind of, the harem experience. What if you're a, a thoroughly decent, very capable, you know, protector provider type male that would be on paper very attractive, but not through social media, what happens to you then? It's often really hard. I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to be all doom and gloom because people clearly are they are still forming relationships. They are still getting married, having children. You know, it's not a complete disaster by any means. But it does seem as if it's more difficult because that's not the template now. That's not the default setting. Um, and I think people are, people are being channeled into more dysfunctional um, relationship norms. I mean, one of the things that's worth remembering is that our species norm is polygyny where you have 80% you know, of cultures on the anthropological record have been polygynous, where you have high status men have multiple wives and low status men have no wives. Um, and Christianity is unusual in insisting on monogamy. Is that we inherited it from, from Rome, um, but it was you know, a very important component of 2000 years of Christian civilization, which now of course would mostly, would mostly rejected um, and even though uh, legally you're still only allowed to marry one person you having sex outside of marriage is now completely socially permissible and so people are in practice seem to be kind of um, being drawn back towards our species norm having lifted the monogamous restriction you know but I argue in the book and I think I think really strongly that um, that monogamous restriction produces much better outcomes, particularly for women um, and for low-status men. But you know, there are all sorts of um, there are all sorts of ways in which monogamous cultures do better than polygynous cultures: lower crime rates, lower domestic violence rates, um, less economic inequality. You know, all sorts of good outcomes that come with insisting on monogamy. And it, this is kind of this is a beautiful example of what happens when you just press the freedom lever and allow allow people to um, to rid themselves of all restrictions. People will often, when you do that, tend to unconsciously rush towards actually less just ways of doing things. You know that we will that we will revert to our species norm supposedly is an expression of our freedom, 
but in fact producing much worse outcomes, particularly for the most vulnerable people, particularly for women and children. You know, the, the, the phrase I use um, a lot, borrowed from um, uh, the historian um, Irish Tawney, uh, is freedom for the pike is death for the minnow. You know, when you have, when you have a, a social environment which is not equal, where people are different from each other in all sorts of important ways, physical, psychological, related to age, related to um, uh, vulnerabilities of, 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 of youth or disability or whatever, just allowing everyone to be free, you know, very often results in the outcome where actually it is the most powerful members of society who, through their freedom, are able to exploit the least powerful. On that, uh, that vein of thought, I think you've indicated that you don't believe that it's necessarily right to say that because it was consensual, it was moral or good. That's an interesting line of thinking because our culture would say, and this is where we're tying ourselves up in knots, was it consensual, was it not? Mm-hmm. He said, she said. But you have a slightly different take, I think. I think it is completely plausible and, in fact, very common for um, a man usually to behave in a way that meets the legal threshold for consensual but is not gentlemanly or not chivalrous or whatever kind of old-fashioned vocabulary you want to use. We don't have modern words to describe this because we find it very hard to talk about such things in a modern context. But, um, you know, I really do think, and I think this is a fundamentally feminist idea, that men have, men have various um, innate advantages over women in being bigger, in being stronger, in not being vulnerable to unwanted pregnancy, all of these things. And I think that actually with, with, with that strength comes additional responsibility. You know, I think that this idea of chivalry, yes, it can sometimes translate into slightly annoying, patronizing behavior that <clears throat> women find irritating, but the, it is absolutely essential. I think the idea of just, 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 just abandoning these old ideas of male restraint, particularly male sexual restraint, in the name of emancipation is madness because we're still talking about sexual asymmetries which are ancient and which are not going away. Um, and so very many of the examples of Me Too you hear, you know, it's not, <clears throat> it's not necessarily criminal. It doesn't necessarily involve violence, but it involves men not behaving like gentlemen, essentially, and not being told that they have to behave like gentlemen, because actually the kind of ambient culture says that's fine. It's interesting, you, you, you painted the contrast a moment ago, you know, with uh, what you're effectively saying is that progressivism isn't actually progressing us to a better future so much as taking us back to the default position of the past. That in escaping the mores, if you like, of Christianity, we think we're freeing ourselves up, but actually we're locking up. So a lot of people into prisons and then forms of enslavement that were there before the influence of religion in our culture. Yeah. I don't think that history is shaped like this. That's the fundamental progressive claim, right? That history is shaped like this. Yeah. That things just get better over time and that that's the natural course of things. In a weird kind of way, it's a very Christian idea, but it's a sort of mangled version of Christian idea. Um, I think that there are probably only so many ways of structuring a very large, complex civilization like ours. And Christianity was a very long-standing and with, with many trade-offs, a successful one. 
And as we move beyond the Christian, the Christian period, you know, I'm, I'm not the first to say that that the 1960s are probably going to be remembered as something like a second reformation, except that instead of rejecting Catholicism, it was a rejection of Christianity per se. And we are moving into the post-Christian era now. And I think what's happening is we're not, um, as the new atheists promised, as the, as the 1960s revolution has promised, we're not moving into some enlightened, utopian, rationalist new way of being. We're actually reverting to other forms of civilization. You know, whether that be, say, the ancient polygynous structures or something more pagan, um, I, it seems very unlikely to me that we're going to, just by throwing off Christianity, going to come up with something brilliantly new. I think the history is much more likely to be cyclical than it is to be linear like this. That's an important and worth considering reflection, I think. Um, can you elaborate a little? The last chapter of your book is called Marriage is Good. And you, you essentially seek to sell the institution of marriage to, to feminists, amongst others. Why would a feminist buy that argument? A feminist assuming that a feminist is somebody who really cares about good outcomes for women? Well, some of them haven't. <laughs> Quite a common experience of um, uh, uh, reviewers and, and, and readers of the book who are coming from a feminist perspective is they say, I really like chapters one through seven and I really don't like chapter eight. Um, I think there's a very strong feminist argument for marriage. It's just not one that's going to be very appealing if you think that the utopian the utopian model is, is achievable. Um, we've talked already about the, the ways in which monogamy produces good outcomes for women. Um, it's really bad for women to be in a polygynous society where they end up living as co-wives in often very fractious households with a lot of domestic violence, a lot of child abuse. At the same time, look, for people who don't have children, I don't think marriage serves much of a purpose, really. It might be, it might be a way of expressing your love for one another. It might be a sort of cherry on life's cake, but it probably doesn't really serve that much of a purpose. Um, I think that the, the purpose of marriage makes sense when you think about the vulnerability of the mother and baby because the nature of, ha of, of pregnancy and having a small baby is that you're really vulnerable. You can't care for your, you, you, you cannot um, participate in the labor market as you otherwise could. You need the care of at least one other adult in order to survive the pair of you. I'm particularly thinking about really sort of um, cultures of much greater privation than ours. To some extent, what feminists, um, what many feminists have tried to do is to try and replace the husband with the state. To say that, well, the state provides universal daycare, if the state provides um, money for mothers, um, you know, all the various things that states can potentially do, then you don't need a husband anymore because the state's your backup husband, you know. Um, and so we can do away with marriage and there's no need for it. The problem is I don't think the state is very good at doing that. And what most women actually want is not to have state actors stepping in and doing the husband's role or doing or doing the mother's role. Um, but it's, it is what, the, what, what women want because of this intense biological connection that women have with their children is to be with their children, but to also be supported by other adults. 
And look, there are, there are countless examples of men performing that role terribly and being abusive and being exploitative and all, and all the various ways in which human beings can be terrible to one another. Having said that, I don't think we've yet come up with a better system than the marriage system, for, 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 particularly the monogamous marriage system for supporting mothers and children. All of the various experiments with communal living or with fully socializing the family or whatever that have been attempted, all of them have ultimately failed, resulted in worse outcomes. And so if we are choosing, if we're not trying to cook up some utopian alternative that's never been tried and likely never will be, if we're, if we're looking at the options available to us that history actually presents to us, the one that seems to have the fewest costs is the monogamous marriage system, which I know doesn't sound very romantic, but if it just on a purely kind of data-driven basis, I think there's a really strong argument for it. Uh, you know, I'd have to push back a little bit gently there and say, actually, I'm not sure what's unromantic about the idea of deep, lifelong commitment to another human being. But that's not what our culture does anymore. And romance seems to have largely disappeared out the door. Where is romance today? Does anyone defend romance? No, <laughs> probably not. I mean, it's this really funny thing that... Um, I was having this conversation with a friend recently who's, who's much more progressive than I am um, about uh, whether or not grandparents have obligations to their grandchildren and whether or not um, it ought to be expected that grandparents will, will help with childcare, will help with financial support, will, do, you know, will, will, will have some obligation to their grandchildren as they do to their children. And obviously vice versa, that everyone has obligations within the family. And she was saying um, basically that it's outrageous to expect that people would limit their freedom in any way in order to, to, to care for their grandchildren or other family members. What we should do is we should have the state do it. So we should have universal daycare. We should have, you know, whoever you want, whichever um, typically poor migrant women you have paid by the state to perform these functions that were once performed by the family. Um, and it should be paid for through taxation, um, which is, of course, coercive. There's an old, so uh, yeah. uh, there's an old uh, bit of wisdom, I think. There's more joy in giving than receiving. Mm. We seem to have lost that idea of being other person-centred and finding ourselves in being generous-spirited. Yeah. Anyway. Um, can I ask you about the impact of, we live in the internet age, firstly of social media uh, on, on relationships and how they're formed and what have you, because most people now meet, it seems, in ways other than socialising physically. Uh, and secondly, the impact via modern technologies of instantly available pornography in every shape, size, uh, and imagination uh, uh, possible in vast quantities. The impact of modern technology on relationships might be the answer, the, the way I'm seeking some views. I think that now meeting through dating apps is the most common um, way in which people meet. And so I don't want to rubbish them entirely because there clearly are people who have found their, found their lifelong spouse through dating apps, you know. But it's very hard to find anyone who, um, uh, who likes them. Very easy to find people who are 
depressed and appalled by them. I mean, dating apps really encourage a kind of shopping mentality. To it, it is almost like using a shopping app. You swipe through people who, who, you know, real living, breathing human people, and you just kind of swipe them away. And no it, place for chemistry. It, it, well, it does encourage a very, um, a very superficial assessment, but also it encourages people to focus in on certain things. So like, for instance, a lot of women will say that they, they want to have a partner who's taller than them. And one of the things that you can ask for in a dating app is, is to filter for, say, men over six foot, which isn't very many men, right? So you're basically excluding the majority of men. Um, whereas most women actually, whereas many women actually would find themselves attracted to a man shorter than six foot in person if there were other if there were other ways in which they were attracted to, to him, you know, so it, it encourages people. It to might have a sense of humour. It might be chivalrous. Yes. Might be unfailingly courteous. Yes, all of these things which you basically don't see at all in a dating app. So it encourages people to be um, to be data driven in a way that is probably not actually uh, reflective of what they really desire in a partner. Because I think most people actually, if they try to sort of write down exactly what they desired in a partner probably wouldn't actually do a very good job of describing what they really what they really want because it's actually quite mysterious um, in terms of porn I mean I think that we have done a terrible thing to young people who the, the guinea pig generation essentially who have been permitted access to millions of images of adults having sex with one another in every in the most degrading forms you can imagine, um, before they've even had the first kiss with a real person. And it, sometimes when um, you talk about the idea of um, regulating porn industry, re restricting access to the porn industry, particularly for children, libertarians will talk as if you're trying to sort of ban eating and drinking as if this is like a fundamental human right. And I say, we've not had, a, this is so novel. Online porn is, is, is maybe 20 years old, less than that in its current manifestation. We, we, we managed just fine as a species up until five minutes ago without access to this. If anything, I would say, you know, the burden, I take Chesterton's fence very seriously, you know, this, this thought experiment, J.K. Chesterton's, that you come to a fence in the middle of a field and you don't know what, what it's for. And the, the reformer, the, the sort of thoughtless progressive reformer says, well, we don't know what it's for, so get rid of it, it's useless. Whereas the, the conservative in Chesterton's mind says, no, find out what it's for, and then, only then, you might consider removing it. Um, I think Chesterton's fence principle is extraordinarily important. And particularly when it comes to something as important and complex and difficult as human sexual relationships. And by just allowing the porn industry to basically have unfettered access to the minds of the world's young in their, by, by being in their pockets is just an astonishingly reckless experiment, I think. And, and as, as, as far as we can tell, um, the early results coming in are absolutely not promising in terms of the effect that it has on these young people. And it's very widespread. Yes. I mean, when it's now typical for boys in particular to be seeing this stuff from the age of 11. Hmm. Hmm. Yes, I uh, 
had the experience after a podcast I did with uh, a lady in Australia about the early sexualization of children, of having two or three young men explain to me what had happened to them and how they'd actually become physically um, unable to operate, so to speak. Yeah. Just dysfunctional. Yeah. And they described their journey back from that place as being very hard. Uh, so can I ask you as we think about drawing your extraordinary insights to some sort of close, what has been the reaction from feminists? You've put a very brave set of propositions out there, very well argued, very well researched, but people tend to react these days so emotively that they can shut your work down without anybody stopping to think, is there something important here? What's been the reaction? How have you found it? It's not been as bad as I thought it would be. I did have a moment before the book was published and it was out there, you know, <clears> it was going to be hitting bookshelves within weeks and I thought, have I ruined my life <laughs> writing this book? Um, but actually, no, I would say about 90% of responses have been really positive. And I think that that's revealing. I think that what's, I think actually an enormous number of people have been thinking this, but perhaps not felt confident to say it. And I get so many um, emails and messages from, um, particularly from young women or from their parents, saying, thank you so much for saying this thing that I've been thinking and that I didn't feel like I could say. It didn't feel, it didn't feel permissible. I thought that there was a, I got this fabulous email a little while ago from the um, mother of a young woman who described how her daughter had heard me on a podcast or something and had, and had bought the book and her mum had bought the book and they'd read it together before she went off to university and then she went to university and um, she didn't want to participate in hookup culture and had uh, been interested in a young man who she'd hoped to develop a relationship with, but instead he'd shown up at her, he'd expected casual sex, so he'd got drunk and he'd, he'd shown up at her, at her room late at night, basically expecting no string sex. And she turned him away and said no, with the knowledge that that probably meant that they would not be having a relationship, you know, that she was, she was, she was rejecting his advances. And she said that she would, in another circumstance, have said yes, possibly in the hope that it would turn into a relationship, which, I, as I write in the book, is you know, it normally doesn't happen. Um, but she said that she she said no to him because she felt armed with permission. That was the phrase she used, armed wow. with permission. And I thought, having having read me, and I thought, why would she need to feel permission to defend her sexual boundaries? But this is that this is the problem that young women are facing now. They don't feel like they have permission to do that. And my hope is that some of them, it it could be as it could be as easy as that. It could be just just to know that actually this is a this is a, it is okay to feel this way. It is okay to, to not want to have casual sex, to, to recognize the ways in which female sexuality is different from male sexuality and all of this. That for some women, maybe a lot, just feeling, um, just having the confidence in their own instincts and their own intuitions. So there's a sense in which people can feel armed with permission to say no I want to do this differently. I think so, because I think it's that, it's, that thing, it's that thing we discussed earlier about sexual disenchantment, when on the one hand, you've got this ideological commitment to the idea that sex doesn't mean anything, all this, but you feel very strongly instinctively that it does. And I think that a lot of what 
progressive politics does is it discourages people from um, listening to their own moral intuitions on things. And what I hope that my book and many others, you know, I'm, I think that there is a, 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 there is a, a new kind of feminism brewing, which is much more attentive to these, these intuitions and is very critical of the liberal paradigm, um, of which I'm a part. And I, and I think that if people can feel, it, it, it might be as easy as, as, as people feeling as though they have permission to respond to their intuition rather than to try and suppress it, particularly young women. What advice would you give to parents who are really looking at their teenagers, kids in their early 20s, walking out into this absolute minefield, some would say cesspit of a culture where the taboos are gone, the guidelines are gone, respect seems diminished, and no one talks romance anymore. How can parents equip their children, in your view? It's very tricky. I mean, I, I'm not currently really having to deal with this because my son's only two. So, you know, I'm hoping in 10 years' time, maybe things will have improved and it will, but the, the task for parents will be easier um, because the task for parents is really hard. It's true because, you know, you might want to be um, reasserting some of these more traditional ideas, but if children are going to school or they're being exposed to... Um, to online pornography and you know, all this stuff, which is going to be in, potentially in conflict with your with your values, that's really difficult. I mean, I would say that um, often parents feel very scared of um, placing constraints on their children, and they want to be their children's friend. It's a completely understandable feeling, but um, children are not capable of making, you know decisions in their best interest. This is why they need parenting. And things like, um, I don't know, giving very young children smartphones, which seems to be increasingly ubiquitous. You know, the, the Silicon Valley tech executives, they don't give their kids internet-enabled devices until they, you know, Bill Gates didn't give his daughter a smartphone until she was 16. Like they know, actually, the effect that, that, that this stuff has on young minds. And it is very difficult for parents when all of their children's friends have smartphones and when your child is telling you, you know, this is social death, not having access to this stuff. But I, I hope very much that there will be increasingly kind of better coordination efforts. Because actually, I, I honestly think that if the government tomorrow banned under 16s from having smartphones, I think parents would cheer. I think parents would be relieved. Because at the moment, there are many, many parents I speak to are really worried about things like porn, about the effects of social media on their children, etc. But they say, I, you know, what can I do because they've all got it? You know, how, how do I? There's kind of a prisoner's dilemma. I think that we should be treating the internet for children in the way that we treat, say, driving and cigarettes. And saying, look, there, there, can, be, there can be pleasures, there can be extreme... There can be usefulness, you know, that, that come from this, this new tech. But actually, it's, um, it has severe dangers and children aren't really capable of negotiating it. Um, 
So that would be on a long laundry list, that would be up there to be much, much more skeptical about um, giving children access to the internet. You've been very generous with your time and what you've had to say is of profound importance to anyone who's concerned, I think, with human flourishing, which in the end is surely about committed and functioning relationships. So I can only say thank you very much indeed. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Conversations with John Anderson. For further content, visit johnanderson.net.au. If you enjoy this podcast, please leave a rating and a review in iTunes. It helps other listeners find us.